It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Crisis Management. I'm Alicia Sikirska. This is a show dedicated to helping businesses navigate their way through the coronavirus pandemic. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the government's decision to continue with one small business aid program and scrap another. We're also going to discuss what's happening with bank deferrals and the latest retail headlines. And we're going to sort through the best approach in terms of financing your business. Now, to get through all these topics, I'm joined once again by Mark Satov. He is the founder of Satov Consultants and a business strategy expert, and he's here to help us find solutions for businesses that are dealing with the pandemic. Mark, welcome back to the show. Great to be here as always. I'm very much looking forward to today's show because we're going to debate with people who are not with us and (laughs) not able to defend themselves. So we're just, I'm really going to have fun with that. Yes, we've got a special guest clip coming up. So uh, I won't spoil it, but it's a It's a fun one. Uh, But let's start with the news from Ottawa. The federal government has extended the Canada Emergency Business Account, which is the $40,000 loan offered to small businesses that are struggling with the pandemic. Uh, Up to $10,000 of that loan is forgivable if certain conditions are met. Now, that has been extended through to the end of October, um, and it's it's a popular program so far. Uh, the government said yesterday that 730,000 applicants have been approved for the program, and the CFIB has reported uh, that it's, it's the most popular program for small businesses. Uh, 60% have taken advantage of the program. Um, but while that program was extended, it seems that the government has let another one just kind of expire? Um, You've ranted about this one before, Mark. It's the Commercial Rent Relief Program. Um, It is essentially dead, although the finance minister, Christian Freeland, uh, kind of hinted yesterday that there might be some other relief or or form of help coming when it comes to commercial rent. Um, Before I get your thoughts on that program, I mean, what do you think of, of this and the fact that SIBA is getting extended? Is that going to make a difference for businesses going forward? Well, uh, my wife's a big Monty Python fan, so uh, I've seen the Holy Grail a bunch of times. You know the scene where they say, like, you know, bring out your dead, and this lady comes up and says, <laughs> yeah. I'm not dead yet, and they smash it down. Well, that's sort of this program, right? Because this program, in, <laughs> not to be rude uh, or overly critical, uh, as is not my nature, it was not a well-thought-out program. It had a great intention. This is the, re- the rent relief one. Uh, it had mm-hmm. it had great intentions. I think they wanted to. Um, I think they wanted to find a way to give relief to both tenants and landlords. And I think the mistake that they made was they thought that government could, uh, I'll say, constructively intervene between two other parties. And it's always hard when you do that. So I think 
I'll talk about the two programs separately. I think in hindsight, what they should have done is made a deal with landlords and made a deal with tenants to give them both relief based on certain conditions that were very specific. And of course they would say, well, they did that, except one of the conditions was the deal that they had with each other. And so I think that if they're going to redo it, they should do something like giving them each relief. I think the conditions need to be very specific. And then you may see actually landlords and tenants finding a way to make deals together on their own of their own volition, uh, which may make them more in compliance. In terms of the C- Yeah, it seemed like it seemed like the landlords that were gonna buy into it in many cases, tenants could just strike an agreement on their own. They didn't need the government to be there to, in order to have those landlords willing to come to the table. Right. Um, also, interestingly, on that program, um, a recent report from the PBO found that $931 million has been spent on it so far, and the government government budgeted $3 billion. Right. So clearly, the uptick is just not there. But SIBA, what are your thoughts there? Right. So yeah, so the, the rent one was undersubscribed. I think SIBA was what you would call oversubscribed. Uh, I personally think, uh, and I don't mean to be flip about very small businesses, I don't think the numbers are that significant. So in other words, $40,000 is good for what you call, you know, a small, very small sort of owner operated business where it's one person uh, and it's a labor business. But once you have a few employees, $40,000 is going to go very quickly. And so the fact that it's oversubscribed wouldn't surprise me because a lot of businesses could eat it up. I think we used it uh, in the early uh, in the early days before Suze came out, uh, and then uh, Suze was was much was much more significant for us because we're a slightly larger business. Uh, I think again there, with the extra time now to think about it, what the government needs to do is I think extending it is probably a good thing. Although I think they should make it larger, which I think they said they move they're moving it from forty to sixty. I think they may want to consider making it even larger, however, making the conditions, again, very specific. At the beginning, I've said this a few times, it's okay to come out and say we have these blanket programs, we're going to cover as many people as possible because we want to stem the panic and we want to make sure that everybody feels like they're covered. And then in time, we've all realized that some of the programs had flaws uh, because some people were getting money that didn't need and other people weren't getting as much as they needed. So we now have the time. So let's make it more specific and potentially larger for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't actually think as of right now, they are going to expand oh. that amount to 60,000, but I know that the CFIB was calling ah. for that. They are, however, going to extend the eligibility um, because before uh, business owners who used a personal account to finance right. their business um, were not able to qualify. So I guess they're they're working with banks to, to make that possible. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem like it's interesting how the government is really, these programs are a work in progress. And so we'll see what happens next with both SIBA and SICRA, which, and or the next iteration of that commercial rent relief program. We'll see what happens next. It's interesting because I, I, Dan Kelly is so outspoken and he speaks more than uh, our government leaders. I just thought that if he said that that was what was going to be true, he's the leader yeah, of yeah. CFIP <laughs> and he's doing a great job. I don't agree with everything he says, but he is doing a great job on advocating for small businesses. So. For sure. Um, so government is expanding one program, can't, scrapping another, and we've got a, a federal regulator that's also pulling back on some of the emergency measures um, that have been put in place as a result of COVID-19. Uh, Canada's banking regulator, OSFI, announced that it is going to phase out some of those emergency relief measures, one of them being that essentially allowed banks to treat mortgage or a deferral or loan deferrals, whether it's mortgage or business loans, as if they were being paid. 
Now the regulator said that both lenders and borrowers have um, adapted to all these extraordinary circumstances that COVID-19 has introduced into our world and, quote, banks are now in a better position to employ their business-as-usual alternatives to support troubled borrowers. We're almost six months into this pandemic, so there are a lot of questions about what's going to happen to those deferrals um, that the bank introduced in March. Mark, what do you think? Are banks going to see those deferred payments actually get paid? I believe so. So you have to treat the business uh, loan deferrals separate from the uh, mortgage uh, deferrals. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'll talk about the mortgage deferrals more, but I could talk about them both. Uh, we saw some data today that showed that actually a very good percentage of the mortgage deferrals, so by volume, the total loan amount, I think 60 or 70 percent, was actually loaned to people who were prime and above. Right. So prime is sort of the best customer. And then there's above prime and super prime. So people who have very good credit ratings. And the implication of that is I think many people took advantage of the loan deferral because they could not because they needed to. And uh, I think that's very interesting because you then say, well, the bank is not necessarily at risk that the people who now have to pay their monthly mortgage are going to default. If actually a bunch of them were taking advantage because remember, money is essentially free today, right? I mean, I uh, I had a mortgage on a second property. I don't need to share my entire uh, financial history here, but I had a mortgage on my second property and it was a variable rate mortgage that I had negotiated a while ago. It was 1.6%, right? That's what I was paying for this mortgage. So I sort of said, oh, geez, I could defer, I could defer my mortgage for six months. Okay, great. And I'm able to pay it. So now that it's over, I've refinanced since anyway, but I'm just going to go back to paying it. So remember that all of the charges that the banks are taking are all theoretical charges. They've not really had big loan defaults yet, right? So the capital, the, the OSFI regulation is about the reserve that they want them to take, which is relative to the outstanding loans. And the way the calculations work, loans in different categories require greater reserve. So if they have uh, a greater percentage of their loans that are in a special situation, they have to take a greater resource, they need more capital against it. But they've not actually had any losses yet. And so I will say that generally speaking, the Canadian banking industry uh, is overprotected by OSFI. They are very stable, which I know everybody says, well, that's, that's one of the benefits, uh, but they don't take a lot of risk. And so I'm, I was never worried about the banks. I guarantee you when this is all said and done, or in a year from now, won't be all said and done. We'll look at the bank profits even after we've had a chance for the loan. Uh, uh, I'll say defaults to come. We'll say, oh, geez, they're still making all money, uh, as much money as they yeah. used to. Why is that? Because their statement to Canada is heads we win and tails you lose. That's just the way it works if you're a Canadian bank. Okay. Just had to throw <laughs> that in there for you. I didn't want to disappoint you. Of course. Uh, at least it's not a comparison to um, the mafia. <laughs> not this week. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens next with the, the bank earnings um, in the next quarter. We obviously just went through them and they are putting it, setting aside uh, less money than they did in that initial quarter um, after the coronavirus pandemic. So it seems things have already somewhat improved and we'll see how these deferrals and and how it all shakes out in the next quarter. It'll be one to watch for sure. Uh, before we get to the fix, I do want to do a quick retail roundup to discuss the latest news that's happening in that industry. Um, first, let's talk about a report from Solutions Research Group. It found that nearly half of households, 46% in Canada, ordered groceries online in the six months leading up to July. Uh, families with children were more likely to order 
online groceries at 57%. Um, interestingly, Solutions Research President Khan Yigit told the Globe and Mail this week that among those who ordered groceries, 53% said that, said that it was something they would do long after the pandemic. Um, do you agree with that, Mark? Do okay. you think that online grocery is here to stay? Okay, so uh, just this, this is going to be your totally argument coincidentally, <laughs> totally coincidentally, Khan Yigit, the author who you mentioned, was at my house on Saturday night past. Uh, and he was at my house and we were debating as we sometimes do the state of e-commerce and things. We were in a screened in porch that was sitting outside just for everybody's uh, comfort on social distancing. Uh, and uh, Khan and I don't necessarily agree on the degree or the pace of e-commerce. And Khan uh, is a long uh, established and a very well reputed uh, research uh, expert and consultant. Uh, and he does a very good job. What he knows as well as I, and as well as everybody who is out there should know, is that when people are telling you what they're going to do in the future, they're lying. And when I say they're lying, I don't mean to say that they're lying on purpose. None of us have a clue what we're going to do in six months. And so it is all well and good to say, you know, 53% of people are uh, buying groceries online. And of those 57% are saying they're going to in the future. I believe the ones who say they're buying it online today because they have no reason to lie and it's very easy to determine but they really don't know what their habits are going to be. It's not like they can look at the last pandemic and say, well, the last time there was a pandemic, this is how quickly, because everything is new now. First of all, the pandemic, and second of all, um, even if there was another extraneous event, e-commerce wasn't as established. So I do believe that uh, e-commerce has taken uh, an inflection uh, in the curve of adoption. I just think it will come back down, not to where we've seen it before, but I, I don't think these, level, these current levels are sustainable. Remember that, e-commerce is not as profitable as in-store commerce. That has not changed since the beginning, right? You cannot make as much money for a retailer, cannot make as much money selling online as they do in-store. Why? It's very expensive to deliver. It's very expensive to acquire customers and you don't get upsell and cross-sell as you do in-store. And so retailers have a reason to try and retain what they can in-store and consumers have a reason when they prefer the in-store experience. And so what you'll have is all these people who never bothered to try e-commerce for certain categories say, you know what, it's actually much easier. Why don't I just go order this online? For sure, people uh, are realizing that for many occasions, e-commerce is better. And the other thing that's happening, uh, which we'll talk about later this week in detail, is uh, stores are investing more in the infrastructure for e-commerce so that it's not as much more expensive than it, as it is in store, but we're not there yet. And so... Right. But they have, I mean, to be fair, the options, I mean, we don't have much to compare to, but obviously there, we haven't seen it. This is a once in a lifetime, fingers crossed event. Um, but, but it's definitely brought uh, retailers, but grocery retailers to a spot that they probably should have been before. And we've seen this kind of spur that investment. Like I'm thinking about Sobeys launched for sure. which is their, their delivery service. So now, I mean, before the pandemic, we just didn't have many options that were reliable. And, and maybe this, maybe there's a point here that more people will turn to it because it it's improving and it's here now. Right. But don't forget before the pandemic, we were also at about 1% grocery e-commerce penetration in Canada. And so, yeah, does this bring us to 6% or 8%? That would still be very significant, but it's not going to be 30 or 40%. And we're not going to be where China is in e-commerce, uh, where they have 20%. And, you know, in China, you buy a car on your phone, 
right? Because that's just the way the culture has evolved and they've leapfrogged, uh, leapfrogged a lot of other things. I just, I, I don't think, what can I say? I think probably Khan and I agree directionally. I just think that the, the degree is overstated uh, and we'll see. We'll see who's right. It'll be me. Okay. It'll be me, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. And we'll we'll dig into more of that on next on our next episode because there's lots to unpack there. Um, but quickly, I w- also want to talk about Gap, which uh, reported its second quarter results recently, as has been the story with many retailers. Online sales were up dramatically, but it was not enough to offset the overall impact of COVID-19. Overall sales were down 18%. Uh, Mark, what stood out most to you out of Gap's results? Gap has had trouble with their brand for five to 10 years. They've not continued. It's not that they've not continued to innovate as much as, you know, it's not that you need innovation in clothing as much as they've not found a way to keep their brand relevant. And by the way, that's a very hard thing to do because brands are trends. Uh, and the Gap offering, you know, when, when I was young, which was a while ago, uh, you know, Gap was a big thing. It was... Uh, in a way, it was the Joe Fresh uh, of uh, my childhood in the sense that it was fashionable in a way, even though it was cheap, because the part of the the the, the message of the feel of the brand was it was very basic, right? And you sort of had like good jeans and good white t-shirts, et cetera. Uh, and I just, I guess that they've just been outdone in that area by a lot of people and they've not done a lot of great things with their brand. They've struggled with celebrities and such. They've signed on Kanye West. I, I don't know how anybody makes that decision in 2020. Uh, and I, so the other- people love their easy brand. Uh, people love I, the easy I, brand. It seemed to pay off for Adidas. I guess but so. I guess so. But Kanye West next time. Well, but get, the Gap also is a mainstream brand, right? And it needs to appeal to a lot of America. And you're taking uh, a Trump supporter who appeals to 40 percent of America, and you're betting on him. Who all? And he's also a fool. But we don't have to debate it now. So um, just remember Taylor Swift and um, and. <laughs> Old Na- to sneak that in. Yeah, just had to. it was obnoxious. Old Navy um, uh, has done well relative to the other uh, Gap brands. Athleta has done well, but they're a much smaller piece. I don't think that I remember when they were coming up with the plans for that brand. They thought it was going to be the next big thing. It wasn't. And Banana Republic has struggled uh, the most of those four brands, which makes sense to me because Banana Republic is upscale, uh, casual wear, and for many people, it is workwear. Right, like you could actually buy a suit uh, at Banana Republic. It's not if you want to dress that well, but you theoretically could buy one. So uh, you, so you, it's not crazy to see that Banana Republic has suffered the most, although they do have some very nice clothing. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see what they do with the Gap brand in and of itself, because Old Navy is a great brand. It is cheap and cheerful. Uh, it's fun. Uh, you know, we buy a lot of our kids' clothes there because it's not expensive. Uh, and yet there's lots of different fun things they do. And I think the gap is sort of in between. And I'm not sure there's, I don't want to say it's going to be gone soon. I'm, there's not as room, as much room for it. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what they do with it in the coming years. Yeah. And competition in that kind of low to mid range category is just so intense. Um, okay, Mark, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get your advice and dig into some of the issues that businesses are dealing with. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. With uncertainty around the rent relief program and then reopenings that are well underway across this country, I think it's a good time to dig back into the challenges that are facing the restaurant industry. Um, on a recent episode of Yahoo Finance's The Final Round, my colleagues in the U.S. interviewed celebrity restaurateur and top chef judge Tom Colicchio uh, to get his thoughts on the challenges and, and what's happening in the industry. Here's what he had to say. Well, it's, it's not faring at all. Um, in fact, uh, estimates are that uh, without help from the government, uh, 85% of independent restaurants in the country uh, uh, will close. I and mean, we're looking at, at an extinction um, uh, event here um, for, for independent restaurants. Um, you know, PPP really didn't help, especially if you were closed. Um, you know, maybe you could pay some rent, but if you weren't open, it really wasn't wasn't helping you. Um, even the extension of 24 weeks, it's it's a little better, but it's really not it's not the it's not the magic bullet that we need. Now, the PPP stuff he just mentioned is obviously U.S. specific, but what struck me was the quote about independent restaurants um, that without help, 85 percent will close, and and that we are looking at an extinction event here. Uh, Mark, what do you think of that quote? Um, and, and is the situation that dire? Well, you know, one, one of the roles that I try to play in the media uh, and when I speak publicly is to try and temper the hyperbole that people use to try to get attention. And I think that using a word like extinction event, uh, I mean, I guess it's cool because it's sort of like, oh, that's an interesting word that you use. I've never thought of it that way. It's just completely wrong and it has no basis in fact. I mean, extinction comes when, you know, the last uh, the last potential to procreate and produce another uh, is gone from planet Earth. And I think that even if uh, 85 percent of restaurants are going to go away in the next five years, which I really hope doesn't happen uh, and I don't think will happen uh, when that's all said and done, we're going to have a bunch of restaurant equipment and a bunch of recipes and a bunch of people who are talented, who know how to start restaurants and a bunch of empty space because the, the, the space is not going to be repositioned for residential or for other businesses. And so uh, maybe a little bit for other businesses, but it, they're going to spring up again. One of the things we have to do is measure if we really wanted to get to an accurate measure there, what is the incremental bankruptcy? Uh, so it's sort of like, you know, the, what they were doing with COVID deaths, like they have a baseline number of deaths in a year and how many more people, how many restaurants go bankrupt in a given year anyway, and then how many more are going bankrupt because of COVID. And I, and I, I've said this last time we spoke about it. I hope I don't come off as being unsympathetic. Running a restaurant is about the hardest thing to do. It's a terribly hard business. It's super stressful under the best of times. And it is very hard now. I do see a lot of restaurants that are really impressing me, uh, with the, with the speed and degree to which they've adapted to, uh, you know, online ordering and pickup, uh, and then finding a way to adapt their space. And I think the best ones will survive and other ones who I'll say deserve to survive won't, but it won't be that we're going to say 85% of restaurants who otherwise would have survived are going to go away. And we certainly are not going to see that restaurants are not going to spring back up again. And so the other thing to think about, uh, you know, we talked about the relief programs in Canada and as you, you called out, we don't, it's not PPP here. It's something different, but when I think about a restaurant, again, I don't mean to be unsympathetic, but if the government is helping you with your wages 
and then somebody else is helping you with your rent and your food expense is variable and you're not paying it. And you qualify as one of the employees, so your wages are uh, actually being paid. Where's the cash going out that is so intense? Now, I realize that they have capital ex- that they've expended, they have to amortize that. And so it's non-cash, but they, they have to pay back loans. But if the loans are being deferred, so I just I just think that for if you actually look at it on an individual basis, it's not to say it's not that bad. It's just not quite as dire uh, as they imply. And, and, and again, I think depending on the situation with the landlord, you may have find a way to actually start up again very soon. But as we also mentioned, rent has been the huge problem here. Yeah. <laughs> there isn't that huge uptick with that program. And, and rent is often just the biggest um, fixed cost that that uh, restaurants especially have to have to deal with. And if you're not making any money, even with the government support, it might not be enough. Um, but one thing I, I do want to touch upon uh, that was I thought was interesting um, in Tom's quote is that uh, the talk about independent businesses, it does seem like they are independent restaurants are facing a similar uh, situation that we're seeing in the broader retail landscape. Um, and it's a conversation that many have been having about, you know, large behemoths like Amazon, Walmart, um, Target. They are thriving at this point, um, while smaller businesses that were forced to close in the early days are struggling. Um, we're also seeing a similar, I mean, he alluded to this and, and later said it in the show that chain restaurants and quick service are doing well, but it's the independent guys that are going to be struggling. Um, do you agree with that? Do you think that's happening and, and what can be done to try to uh, make sure that the independent restaurants can survive this? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit of philosophy. Uh, Okay. People who run independent businesses, uh, as I do, I run a small independent business, we're not better people than everybody else. So we don't deserve to make a living more than anybody else. We just chose to take risk and for our risk, make a profit. And so, of course, it's nice to be at an independent restaurant. Of course, I prefer going to an independent restaurant than a Taco Bell. Um, But I'm not sure it necessarily needs to be the primary objective of the economy to save independent businesses as much as it is to save jobs and make sure that everybody has enough. So in the so that, that's a sort of philosophy thing. Um, the other thing I would say is the uh, the independent restaurants versus the, the chains, a, a lot of it is not about the fact that they're a chain or a very large restaurant, because don't forget, the chains are mostly franchised. Uh, and so a, a lot of them are actually independent restaurant operators. They just have a license agreement with McDonald's or Tim Hortons or, or what have you. But a lot of it is actually just the format of the restaurant and the quick service restaurants where you go in and go out and don't sit there uh, or you drive through uh, either on the way to work to get your breakfast or somewhere else. They're just more amenable to pandemic, which nobody could have predicted. And so if you think about, mm-hmm. by the way, the research shows that uh, the research that I've seen shows people are really looking forward to getting back to restaurants. And one of the things that restaurants can do, in addition to adapting to an online or pickup or delivery, uh, is finding a way to demonstrate to all their patrons how safe they are. Because most people are saying, we'd love to get back to restaurants. We are worried about safety. For, For me personally, I don't know if I'm representative. I will say, I would love to get back to restaurants. Dining in right now for me, not worth the risk. Like dining out at a patio, I don't think there's much risk and it's worth it for me. I do miss restaurants. I don't miss them enough 
to be sitting at uh, you know my favorite uh, restaurant. My wife and I go to Bar Mercurio on Bloor Street. Just like to plug my favorite spots. Uh, <laughs> we we miss going there. We won't go there for another year. I'm pretty sure they'll survive, but who knows? So uh, some of the, the 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 big business small business thing is a format issue, unfortunately. Right. Um, okay. Well, I do want to leave some time for our next topic, which is kind of related to this and, and related to a few of the other things that we've discussed in this episode, um, about, you know, loan programs, loan deferrals. Um, so I want to dig into financing your business. I know there are many different options when it comes to financing, whether that's through, uh, a loan or line of credit with a large bank or an alternative lender or, through equity financing. Um, Mark, take us through some of the options and and what businesses should be considering when it comes to financing at this point. Sometimes when a client asks me a question, I sort of say, okay, do you want the short answer or the long answer? Uh, (laughs) I don't know how much time we have left for the segment, but I will say it's complex to think about the different decisions you have uh, when you're financing your business. So what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna lay out some some categories of decisions and then we could go down uh, anywhere you think is interesting. So there are three big decisions I think you have when you are financing your business and they go in order. First of all, to what degree are you going to finance it yourself or use OPM as we say, other people's money? And uh, when you use other people's money, uh, you are giving up control, you're giving up a share of the profit, but you are doing it because you think that you're going to make more money and it's worth it, right? So when I started my tiny consulting business uh, just about 20 years ago, I financed it with my own money. Uh, I've never taken money from others. I don't need it. I don't have ambitions to grow it to uh, many times its size. When Mike Katchen started Well Simple, a business we probably all know very well in Canada, he's a brilliant guy. Uh, that business needed $200 million, uh, which he's raised mostly from the Demare family uh, and a couple of other investors. And he is going to own a tiny percentage of a gigantic business one day. And so I just paint two extremes because people need to think about, okay, do I want to control a small business and not have anybody to answer to and have all the profits? Or do I want to have other people uh, help me? Uh, and I'm going to own a smaller thing with less control. The second, uh, the second decision is, do you want to use debt or equity, right? Uh, and so when you think, and, and again, that's if you're using other people's money to some degree, you're either using debt or equity. Uh, and then, of course, once you choose debt or equity, then which type of provider are you actually choosing to provide that debt or equity? I'm guessing you want to know a little bit about the choice between Canadian banks and other providers of debt. Uh, and I'm guessing that you're going to guess my view, but you actually be wrong. I don't think... Canadian banks are a bad choice for debt for Canadian businesses. Uh, I think it just depends on the type of business. They are, I'll say, a traditional financer. They're not great for high-risk businesses. Uh, They tend to like a lot of security. Uh, So when you have a stable business where you want to finance your assets, your receivables, your inventory, et cetera, you could look at a Canadian bank. Uh, They're going to be pretty structured. Again, they're not going to go out on a limb. Mm but you could probably get in and out quickly. When you want people are going to take risk, then you probably need to look alternatively. They're gonna be a little bit more entrepreneurial, a bit more nimble. But the main thing to remember, especially if you're in a distressed situation, is nobody is out there to do you any favors. Not a Canadian bank, not an alternative lender. So if somebody comes and says, you know, I'm gonna give you $600,000 to pay off your bills when somebody else won't, just be careful what all the fine print is because it's likely that they have a lot of fees in there to set it up, fees to get out of the loans, uh, fees if you don't pay certain things on time. 
and other they probably will want options and warrants for equity or just other ways to control the business. So just be conscious of the fact that when somebody gives you money that other people won't, the likelihood is they will want to get paid for their risk in one way or another. I know that's a sort of broad description, but. No, I think, I think all of that, that had, there was a lot of helpful advice there and I would love to dig into it, but I think we're going to have to wait for another episode because we have unfortunately run out of time. Um, Mark, thank you so much. Uh, if you want to rewatch this episode, please check out Yahoo Finance Canada. And that's where you can also find the latest news on the economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic. You can also check us out on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We are, of course, a podcast. And if you have any questions for Mark or feedback about what you saw today, you can email me. I'm at A-L-I-C-J-A at yahoofinance.com. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.